If you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn to Titus 3, 1 through 11. This is the last in the, in the tease of, of Paul's New Testament, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. You get past, you get to Philemon, you've gone too far. Turn back. Titus 3, 1 through 11, Paul is, is, is trying to make a point about who we are and what it is that you and I should look like. It, it, it appears that you and I are heirs. That is that you and I have been adopted into the family of Christ and family members should look like one another. That is what Paul is trying to tell you. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Um, my, my wife and I, we have five kids because we're crazy. Um, and how you treat the oldest kid, especially when they're, they're first born, it's your first child, is so radically different than when you get to child five, for example. I remember with my first child, you know, you, you would give her something like a passy or a bottle, and if anything fell out of her mouth and it touched anything, we had to sterilize it because we were afraid she was going to get some sort of germ never known to man before. Our fifth child one time walked in with a passy in his mouth that we hadn't seen for three months. And we thought, resourceful kid, good job. So it's, it's on the first child side. This is, this is our first child. Tend to be a little bit more sensitive about things. And everyone would say that our first child looked like me. Which is fine, I guess. Don't ask me what a child looks like. They all look like cranky old men to me. I can't tell you if it looks like mom or if it looks like dad. But everyone would say, looks just like dad, looks just like dad, looks just like dad. And when you're mom and you've carried this child for nine months and gone through labor and as the one waking up every three hours to nurse and everyone says how much the child looks like dad, it can get on your nerves. So one day, she's at Target, and she's got the baby on the, on the buggy, facing backwards, and the woman behind her says, "Oh, she looks just like you. And my wife said, thank you. You are the first one who has ever said that. And the woman said, I was just trying to be nice. <laughs> just for clarity's sake, it, it, it doesn't count if you say I was just trying to be nice. Apparently, there was a strong resemblance between my first child and me. If you looked at her, you knew she came from my lineage. Well, there's something about us that as people see us in life, they should immediately see something of the fact that we are heirs. We come from the lineage of Jesus. In other words, What we confess here in the sanctuary should be seen by others in the streets. It doesn't doesn't just reside with us here on a Sunday morning. Paul calls us heirs here. And heirs should show something of the ones to whom we are adopted. Well, before we read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father... Thank you so much for this, your word, written from of old. You knew when Paul penned this letter that in the year 2023, we here in Greensboro would read it and think about it, and that you meant it for its purposes to work on our hearts 
that we might more and more look like that which we are, your heirs, your adopted sons and daughters, in order that people might see something more of you and us. So we ask that you would help this word to do its work on us, open our ears, soften our hearts, and make us eager to live it out with our hands that you might get the glory. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have, been del- who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish, uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Well, praise be to God for his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. Uh, First and foremost, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you to your session for the invite to allow me to come and to fill in for Pastor Stewart this Sunday. For those who don't know me, which I think is probably 100% of you, uh, I am the pastor of counseling at First Presbyterian Church Fellow ARP in Columbia, South Carolina, where I serve with someone you may know, Derek Thomas, Uh, He is our senior minister there. Derek and Neil are good friends. And when Neil came into the ARP, I was blessed to become friends with Neil as well. And his friendship has blessed me. So I'm glad to be here and to cover for him. And greetings from your sister church uh, in Columbia. Now, our text, it, it easily kind of separates into three divisions here. First, the gospel reflected, verses 1 and 2. Second, the gospel explained, verses 3 through 8. And then lastly, the gospel rejected, verses 9 through 11. I know that word rejected is somewhat harsh. It's actually the word used in the text, and we'll We'll talk about that more when we get there. So first, the gospel reflected, verses 1 
and 2. Notice, notice where Paul starts. He starts by telling them that they need to be submissive and obedient. Now, if you had Presbyterian bingo cards, words that get said at nearly every sermon, at least for our sake at First Pres Columbia, countercultural would be on that bingo card. Every single Sunday, it seems that someone says that something is countercultural. But actually, that's, that's exactly the point for Paul here, is that obedience and submission is indeed so countercultural that when you do it well, it can't help but point to something beyond yourself. Now, there's, there's a reason that, that Paul is telling this group of people that they need to be submissive and obedient, the, the Cretans. And we'll get to that here in a moment. This is the third time, actually, that he's used this word submit in this small epistle. He used it for husbands and wives. He used it for masters and slaves. And now he's using it for the congregation as a whole. Submit to the leaders. Now keep in mind, Paul Paul has no idea of what a representative democracy is. He, He doesn't have the same civic arrangement that you and I do. And praise the Lord that you and I live in a civic system where we get to go and exercise our vote in order to hopefully get the leaders that you and I want. However, the leaders that we have are the leaders that God chose before the foundation of the world. Can't say I always understand the, the leaders that we have. One of my, my favorite words that I learned, I'm currently doing a PhD, and one of my favorite words that I learned during the process of studying for my GRE, which is the worst ever, don't, don't do that if you don't have to, uh, was cacistocracy. Yeah, exactly. What? But it's one of those things, you got, you know, just in case it comes up, cacistocracy. Go look it up. Google it when you get out of here. Not now. When you get out of here, it means being ruled by the worst. Right? There was something about when I read it where I was like, nah, Lord. I don't choose. I don't choose who's, who's there all the time in all its various capacities. But the same principle is true for me as was true for Paul and for the Cretans. Everyone submits. And we submit to the people that God puts in place for us. For wives, that's your husbands. They're your, they're your spiritual head. For men that, and wives, it's, it's the government, but it's also the church. Uh, we just had... Uh, members join and there were membership questions I, I believe it was the last one where it asks in loving obedience do you submit how weird is that for us as a culture to have to say that we submit to something we don't like submitting our pride hates submission instead we want to be the one making the decisions. We want to be in the room. We want power. We want glory. We don't want to have to submit. But everyone submits to someone. 
and how you submit and what that obedience looks like when you submit seems, by Paul's reckoning, to have a powerful witness to who you are in Christ. Now you submit to a church, this church and her officers submits to a denomination. That denomination submits to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. As we find him and know him through his word. That, that's the, the underlying doctrine to the question that preceded it. The, the, the seventh question about do you agree that the doctrines are founded on the word? Yes. Why? Because we need to submit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even as leaders, even as a denomination, we don't get to just decide what to do, how we want to do it. We have to submit to Christ through his word. There's something about being submissive and something about obeying that reflects a gospel of peace in a way that is incredibly powerful. Now, You can't submit to something that is sinful. You would never tell a wife that she has to submit to something that her husband wants if what her husband wants is sinful. It's unethical. And so the same thing happens here. You you can't submit to that which is unethical. However, there's a lot of stuff that I'm asked to submit to that I really just don't like. It's It's not necessarily contra Scripture. It's not contra the virtue of Christ But I'm asked to do it, and so I do it as a way of showing my submissiveness to the leaders that the Lord has chosen to put in place in my life, even though I don't understand it. And the Cretans need to hear this. The Cretans were new to Roman rule, and so they were prone to rebellions. They were prone to trying to rise up and regain their independence again and again. And Paul is saying, look, just... This this isn't a winnable fight. It doesn't matter. Just have them submit. The the people in your congregation, if they will submit to the rulers, there's something about that in the midst of a culture that all it wants to do is fight. All it wants to do is be at odds that is incredibly winsome. That seems to be able to win people over. And it doesn't come from my own pride, because my pride doesn't want to submit. My pride doesn't want to obey. That's for children to their parents. That's for spouses. That's for us. That's for here at the church. So his first um, uh, kind of injunction for this group of believers is that they need to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, and they need to be obedient. Next, he says, you need to be ready for every good work. Now, I am the least athletic dad in the history of dads, which is not great for my sons. But I like sport. Unlike Derek, Derek, he's not sporty and he hates sports. I'm not sporty, but I really like sports. And it took a while before I realized I'm really just not that good at it. So one year I was... Uh, playing baseball with the friends, hadn't realized how bad I was at it quite yet. Coach is trying to coach me on being an infielder, and he tells me that in order to be an infielder, you need to always be on the 
your toes and on the balls of your feet. You don't need to be flat-footed. If you're flat-footed and a ball is hit, you're not going to be in a position to really go after that ball and grab it. It's going to get right by you. So you always need to be in a position of readiness, ready to act. This is the theological version of that. You need to be ready to act for good works. Let me find the good works in my life and the opportunity for good works in my life and let me attack them and go and do them. Not a a passive like, oh, well, if it just happens to come into my orbit and I'm not doing anything better at that time and I can't find any other way to use my time, then I guess maybe I might which is about 99% of us and, and how our hearts tend to work. And, and instead, Paul's, Paul's in, encouraging you to be eager to go find these opportunity to do the good works so that you can reflect something of the loving nature of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know which works are good and which works are not good. We live in a day and time where so easily good is called evil and evil is made to be good. How do we discern? Well, it has to be God's word. This has to be built upon and a request for you to know and be steeped in God's word. That's the only way we can discern what is good and what isn't good. This is a call for you and I to daily steep ourselves in the grace of God, daily steep ourselves in his wonderful commandments that we might live a life that reflects more and more the character and nature of who God is. I don't know about you, but I I used to look at the Ten Commandments as kind of the greatest hits of God's law. You know, like there's, there's all this law... And, and Deuteronomy, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and these, these ten, they're God's greatest hits. No, that, that's not how that works. These, these ten commandments, they show you the essence of the character of who God himself is. The, all of those things where it tells you that you shouldn't tell a lie, that's because God will never lie to you. Where you shouldn't covet something someone else has, he will never covet another people. He wants you and you alone. All of those commandments reflect something that is the core of the character of the God that we worship. Don't you want to be like the person you worship? When I was a kid, I was a kid in the 80s and 90s. And there was no one more popular than Michael Jordan when I was a kid. And even for a guy, once again, going back to my previous statement, least athletic person in the history of people, even for me and my one-inch vertical leap, when I jumped, I would stick my tongue out. Why? Did sticking my tongue out allow me to jump higher? No. Did it give me more speed? No. It made me look like a guy I idolized when I watched him on the court. A guy by the name of Michael Jordan. 
You and I get to be like Christ. You and I get to be like the Lord. When we look at those Ten Commandments and we see the core of his character, we can be like that. Excited to be like that. To look like that so that people might know the love and character of Christ more genuinely. Not just words on a page, but lived out in a life. There's something winsome about that. When you and I can act like that. How is it that you and I know good works? It's by knowing Christ. It's by knowing God and knowing his word. So he says, be obedient and submissive. Be ready for good works. And then he gives you four examples. Two to avoid and then two to embrace. The two to avoid... Speaking evil of people and quarreling, and the two to embrace are to be gentle and to show, golly, guys, this is hard, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Paul gives you no outs there. Be kind of courteous to the people you like. That's, I think, about 95% of the world. Paul puts you in this box that you can't get out of. Perfectly courteous. All people. That's that's your call as a Christian in the midst of a watching world. So let's look at these four uh, examples together. Things to avoid speaking, evil, and quarreling. These, These are word sins. These are sins that you and I engage in with our mouths, one as we're talking about somebody and one as we're talking to them. First off, avoid speaking evil about someone. They've done studies that have shown that speaking about someone, two people speaking about a third, is the easiest way to form relationships. It's the easiest. You and I find someone we don't like and we just talk about that person or that thing or that people group that we don't like and it helps us form a relationship. By the way, that's pretty much all of middle school. (laughs) It's not until later that people learn how to have relationships on who they are, what they like, their hurts and their sadness, their joys. Not just the people they dislike. Here's the problem, though, with those relationships which are so easy to form. You and I who don't like that third person or thing, they are brittle. They can't handle any weight. Those relationships don't show up for you when you're depressed or sad or grieving. They don't bring you a meal when you've lost someone. They don't pray for you when you've gotten a diagnosis. They don't listen to you. When you feel like you have no hope. Those relationships fall apart when anything heavy comes along. Instead, we're to be about forming relationships based on a person and that's Jesus Christ. Um, D.A. Carson in his little book, Love in Hard Places. Wonderful little book. It's D.A. Carson. It can be hard to, to keep up with sometimes. But he says that Uh, A church group, people should walk in to our sanctuaries 
and immediately have the sense there's no reason these people should all be in the same building. There's, there's nothing I can figure that would draw all these people together. Except one thing. A love for Jesus. We don't, we don't talk evil about people. We talk grand about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that is who we are. So you don't talk evil about someone. It's, it's the theological equivalent to what I'm sure your mother or grandmother has told you a hundred times. If you don't think, have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Here Paul resonates. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't say hard things to each other. Paul will clarify in Ephesians 4 that we are to speak the truth in love to one another. We have to be honest. And Scripture is an instrument oftentimes of rebuke in order that we might see the sin and sinfulness in our lives and we might kill it. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the pride that drives you and I speaking ill of somebody else just because we don't like them or quarreling that's the second piece and and you'll see that if you didn't notice it it comes back up paul hits that particular note again at the end of this section um quarreling is this fighter's mentality what it might be called a party spirit, if you were going to read some Puritan writers, or, or a pugilistic, a, a, a fighter. You're always looking to fight. You're always trying to find something to fight about. Shush. Something to fight about or against. Honestly, the sensational nature of fighting, always finding an enemy, can in and of itself become addictive for people. Well, they're always trying to find somebody that they're on the outs with. And, and doesn't this make sense if you don't have the gospel? The world is terrible. It's full of people who are angry and resentful and disease and people who would as much murder you as say hi to you sometimes. You got to find a reason why that's true. Why is it that the world is in the state that it's in? And if you don't have in your mind that it's sin and it's me, you're always looking outward for someone else. And it's them. And it's them. And it's that group. And it's that ideology. They're the problems. And instead, Scripture seems to say, the problem is me. And my heart. And we're going to see that here clearly in just a few verses. So keep yourself from speaking evil against someone. Make sure you're not always quarreling with people. And instead, you're supposed to show this sort of gentleness and courteousness for all people. There's a way in which that gentleness and courteousness displays the peace and the love that we have in the gospel. Now, you're asking the same question I'm sure that I was asking when I read this text, which is, yeah, right, Paul, how? This seems impossible, especially given our current day and age. If you want to you talk about a day and age where people want to be at odds with each other, man, Isn't that really just what Twitter is? It's just a whole bunch of people mad at each other. That's all that Twitter is. Or pretty much any social media nowadays. 
If you don't think exactly like I think about every single thing, that's it. You are canceled. Don't even talk to me. How in this moment, Lord, am I supposed to be courteous to all people? Perfectly courteous to all people. Well, the answer for Paul is the gospel. And so he's going to explain the gospel in verses 3 through 8. And the gospel always has three parts to it. Who we were, what was done, and who we are now. So let's look at all three of those parts. Who we were. Paul has six attributes about who you and I were before the gospel came to us. Listen to how Paul describes you and me and himself. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Now, it's from here forward, really the, the, the last two phrases, but from here forward, that captured my heart and made me meditate on this series of texts. Uh, in, the, in the McShane reading plan, which is the, the Bible in a year reading plan that I've done for 15 years now, um, I believe this text comes up in August, so it was August when I, when I read it. And these next three phrases just seem like it hit the nail on the head for where we are as a culture... And as a guy who does counseling somewhere between half and two-thirds of my time at the church, this seems to hit exactly where a lot of people I knew were and where they were struggling. So, So listen to these three phrases. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. What happens when you are given the ability to run all of your pleasures and passions as far down the rabbit trail as you want? Which, by the way, is what the devices in our pockets allow us to do. The devices in our pockets are better at knowing our own pleasures and passions than we are. That's what the algorithm is for. Is like, oh, well, who knew I cared or liked watching an industrial press destroy things? Google did. And put it on my YouTube feed. And I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Who knows what a you know, steel ball looks like when you crush it in a press? Fine. What happens when you're allowed to just not worry about anything else, anyone else, your time is your own, and you're allowed to run down whatever pleasures and passions and desires you want? Where do you get? Do you get satisfied? Let me ask you that question. If you're able to take your pleasures and passions aside from Christ, and you're able to just lean into them, do you find yourself satisfied? Isn't that what Satan always promises? He tells you, hey, if you don't do this thing, if you don't take time for yourself and really explore this pleasure or passion of yours, you're going to be miserable. You'll never be whole. You'll never be satisfied unless you explore your own heart at depth. 
And instead, what you find is misery. You find yourself given over to envy and malice. Because it doesn't lead to satisfaction. And so you find yourself pulled down that rabbit trail more and more. Certainly, at some point, I'm going to find satisfaction. And instead, the gospel says something very different, which is self-denial leads to satisfaction. Christ was the suffering servant. You and I often balk when we have to suffer or serve. And yet it is when we get to be like him that we find ourselves most satisfied. This, this is a picture for me of where we are. People hate each other right now with a vitriol I can't remember in my lifetime. Now, that doesn't mean never. I'm not, I don't know all of history. And, and they've done studies, and it seems like where there used to be some middle ground, more and more we're pushing to the poles. And the more we push to the poles, the more we hate the people that are on the opposite pole. And the more we are actually circumspect of the people that are on the pole with us because they might actually be someone over there when when we're allowed to just push into that what we find ourselves is is paranoid frustrated angry hating others and being hated by them that's what we all were according to paul all of us by nature doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. Doesn't matter if you think, no, 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 I'm not technological. That's all being, I don't, I don't even know how to spell social media, let alone be on it. No, 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 that's still you. The Cretans didn't have social media. They didn't have Twitter. And they still knew how to push into their pleasures to the point that they were hated and hating one another. That's who you and I are. And then verse 4. Oh, blessed verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly. By the way, I prefer the word lavishly. That's... That, that word has that connotation to it. He poured out on us lavishly. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't even hold back that which was most precious to him in all the universe. His own son, who he lived with in perfect community, community and communion for all of time. He said, I'm willing to give that and let him die for you. So that you will be mine. And I can live in perfect communion and intimacy with you. That's amazing. Not for anything that we've done. I can't explain it, y'all. I, I can't tell you why he chose you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, but if you do, praise the Lord. You're one of his. And he has chosen to share everything with you. You are an inheritor. You are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. And this isn't just a prince and the pauper story, right? Where you have somebody who's poor 
who find his way into royalty and then somehow is allowed to act like royalty and, and, and then is allowed to get out of his station in life. Nope. This is a pauper who hated the prince and killed him the moment he got the chance. And the king said, that's okay. I love you and you're mine anyway. His death was actually what needed to happen that you might become my son. That's, that's the gospel. The gospel is, is what was done for us. Who we were, these disobedient foolish people and it's by God's grace that we become those who are heirs don't you you see the peace the character that we're now supposed to display because of the one we love who did that for us if you if you try to do verses one and two in your own strength if you try to bo- uh, 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 solo bootstrap by my own bootstraps I'm, I'm going to do this thing. You are going to fail miserably. And you're going to get exhausted. And you're just going to move on. And you're going to be like the world again. But if instead, every single time you wake up, you run to the cross. And you see your sins nailed there. And Christ dying there for you. Guess what? More and more you're going to be able to be one who is peaceful and perfectly courteous to those around you. You're not going to expect the world to act like Christians when they're not. You're going to expect them to act like people who hate others and run after their own pleasures because you knew that's who you were. You're not going to be surprised by it. And you're going to earnestly and eagerly try to show something of Christ's character to them so that they may be as in love with him, that they may know his goodness as his goodness is meant to you. So it's the, it's the gospel that allows verses 1 and 2 to happen. Now let's get to that last section, the gospel rejected, verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul is like painting in contrasts here. You know how wonderful it is to be submissive and obedient and to have um, perfect courtesy and then the beauty of of the grace of God in comparison to who we were and now he's showing you look at the uselessness the beauty of the grace and the the usefulness of being prepared to do all these good works and the uselessness of getting sucked down into all of these dissensions that can be so easy that's that's what he's saying he's he's giving the word um foolish controversies as a cover and then giving you three just quick examples of what happens the the foolish controversies uh genealogies are one of them and and if you think about this the new testament church didn't have the new testament yet they did not yet have romans and these other things um in fact verses three through seven are probably an early confession an early confession making its way around the church, which is why Paul says, I insist on these things. This is a good training tool. 
This is a right confession of who we were and who God is. So if you didn't have the New Testament yet, and you had your Bible, which was the Old Testament, where were all the promises of God aimed generally in the Old Testament? God's people. Who were God's people? Well, they were people who had Hebrew blood, Israelites and Jews. And so there was this tendency to try and go and find some genealogical research that would show that you are somehow, some way, you have the blood and the genes of a Hebrew. And therefore, the promise is genuinely yours. You, you see the problem there. That makes salvation something other than grace. It's, it's nothing to In my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling, except for this report from genealogy.com. And it says that you have to love me because I have one one twenty-eighth Jewish blood in me. Paul's saying, no, don't don't get sucked into that. What, What you have and who you are as heirs is by grace alone. It is not anything that you merit And then dissensions. There's one thing for someone to be quarrelsome, which is what he will save his sharpest rebuke for. You don't have to be quarrelsome, though, to find yourself sucked up into quarrels. Someone starts it and starts having some issue, and then you find yourself sucked up into that controversy, sucked up into that disagreement. And Paul's saying, just stay away from it. Go and do the good works that is true of a Christian. Stand up for the truth, yes. Make sure you can say it clearly, yes, which is exactly what verses 3 through 7 are. But don't get sucked down into to all the silly controversies. And then and he talks about the law and how people get sucked into these controversies of the law. He, he's, he's got experience here. He was trained in the Pharisaical school. And, and, and at a really high level, too. So he knows what it is to get sucked down into this casuistry. Casuistry is, can I do this or can I do that? A quick example, um, some Jews, because they had been taught, you can only go a certain distance from your home, would, the day before the Sabbath, leave trash around the city that they owned. They owned that trash. Bubblegum wrapper or whatever it is. But because that's mine and I own it, that's now a piece of my home. So now I can go wherever I want to because I've left my trash around Jerusalem that I own. Right? That's the sort of silly quarrels that people niggle into when they start asking the wrong questions. Let me give you a modern example of it here, which is, can I X on the Sabbath? That is the wrong question. How is it that I use the Sabbath to love the Lord more? God who worked and chose to rest on a day because he knew that I as a finite being needed rest when he didn't need it. He condescended for me. How am I shepherding my Lord's day to rest and love him more? That's the right question. Not can I go to this place, do that thing. Stay away from the silly controversies. That's what he's saying. Then there's somebody who seems to always bring these up. And that's the quarrelsome person. 
Greek is an inflected language. Anybody who's done any sort of work on inflected language, like a German or a Latin or others, you, know, you, you can sneak parts of other words into one word. You can end up with this big, long one word that's almost like an entire sentence in English. And so Greek has the ability to do that. It has to import objects and pronouns and subjects and all, all kinds of things. So it's not, it's not uncommon for you to have less Greek words than English words in a verse. This verse, however, there are only eight Greek words for our 22 English words in the ESV. It, it, I'm not a translator, so I can't give you any other translation. This is a good translation. I'm not, don't lose heart in your translation. It's a great translation. But Paul is doing something, this sort of eight to one ratio, eight Greek words to a, or a, a three English words for one Greek word is still pretty strong. Paul is saying something in a very staccato sort of way. He's, he's slowing his cadence down and giving you eight very impactful words, one after the other. Maybe as a parent, you've done something like this, where you've had this sort of staccato cadence with your child. Give you an example. This is a living example happened in my house. Do not stick that crayon in your brother's ear. An English sentence I never thought I would ever have to utter. Before I had children. But there's something real and dangerous about sticking. I don't know what my five-year-old at the time, I think he was five and the other one was three. I don't think what he was thinking, like, I mean, his eardrum needs to be green. I don't know. I have no idea. But it was dangerous. He could hurt his brother. And he needed to know, do not do that. That's a sensitive part of your brother's anatomy. Be careful. Right? Paul's doing something similar. And so he says this. This is the Greek. Quarrelsome man, after warning once, then twice, reject. Slows it down. He's straight to the point. If there's somebody among you who likes to quarrel, they're drawn to it. Always finding something to be in conflict about with people. Warn him. Once, then twice. And then that word reject, it's the exact same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians to excommunicate someone. That's how serious this is now in our current cultural moment your culture wants you to be quarrelsome it's pushing you in that direction it wants you to stand up about something everything all the time and you are not trustworthy if you don't give your opinion and give it in 140 characters or less but very strong that's what it wants. And Paul is telling you, no, no, no. Set yourself aside from what the world wants. Set yourself aside from what they think is trustworthy. You show something of the character of the gospel. You show them peace. You show them kindness. You show them winsomeness and goodness. Because though you didn't deserve any of those things... The God of kindness and peace came to live with you. And you have peace with him. The number one thing people should see from you 
as one who has peace with God is peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is an incredibly difficult thing for us to live out. It seems maybe even more so now than at various times, though it is apparent that it has been difficult for all people for all times. And so we ask, not because of us and nothing that has to do with our own ability, but because of the grace and mercy that you have given us, because you have been a God of peace to us, that you would help us to live in peace and to reflect something of the God of peace to a watching world, that they would see that satisfaction does not come in their own hearts, but only comes in Christ. Help us to do it, that you would get all the glory and honor. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.